Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur video and audio podcast. And very privileged today to have in pretty much the whole of the UK and possibly the world a legend in the house. A six-time yeah, six. snooker world champion, MBE, OBE. And um, something I'm really interested in for entrepreneurs who are listening in is how you've managed to make so many different careers. Because I guess you're normally talking about snooker, but you're into music. I remember watching you play pool and you transitioned from snooker to pool. And I used to play a lot of pool. And I guess people who don't know the difference assume it's the same and it's nothing like snooker and pool. So straight in with the first question, how have you managed to build so many different careers? Well, well, exactly. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say careers. I would say gone in different directions because I'm not absolutely sure that I'm exactly the same animal as you in as much as I fell in love with a sport and a game and then that took me on a journey. Mm. I never really had a preconceived idea about where I wanted to go. Mm. All I did was fall in love with trying to get a ball in a hole with a stick. Right. <laughs> so, to some degree, I don't think I've ever been master of my own destiny. Mm-hmm other than the fact that obviously I practiced very hard yeah. and became very good at what I did. Mm. But I know lots of other people who practiced equally as hard, really? who didn't have whatever it takes to make it to the top of the snooker world, yeah. who would say, well, I, you know, in that respect, it's just that there's a, an element of luck it attached to if somebody becomes well known. Sure. But as a result of becoming successful in my chosen sport or game and then becoming well known, Doors then open that otherwise wouldn't be open to you. So, yes, I I get involved in doing the TV work. That's a natural progression from being an expert in the game to becoming an analyst and doing some commentary and doing the DJing thing, which is a recent bizarre thing that's happened in my life, (laughs) has no relevance to anything You're just trying to break the stereotype of you, Steve, that's been built. It's just happened, the fact that I quite like collecting records as a hobby, and all of a sudden it went, and do a radio show, which is on a small community radio station, and the next minute, doing a few live promotions, got a bit of advertising, and then Glastonbury phones up, and I'm now DJing at Glastonbury. So, so, but from getting back to your original point of how how do you manage to do that, wasn't a conscious effort. So, so, could I just, sorry, I'm a serial interrupter here, and we'll, we'll get back to the point. One thing I picked up on is you said you just followed your passions, it seems, so you love music, Mm. You love snooker, I guess you must have loved Paul, you must love doing TV. So are you saying you've just followed your passions and things have worked out? I think so, yeah. I, I think, I think I've, I've sort of considered myself very lucky that my hobby became my profession. Mm-hmm. I don't ne- think that's necessarily always the case. Um, yeah. oh, I, would, I would say to anybody that was a young kid at school, you, know, like you, you think you've got to do this and that in as much as you know, you've got to go to uni, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. I would say if you've got a a strong interest in something to pursue that because mm. I think if you actually enjoy your job you've got more chance yeah. of it becoming a successful job and also something that's rewarding. Sure. Not everybody's got a 
a hobby or a passion that could become a job. Yeah. Spec. But we but, were just talking before about snooker and it not really being the biggest money sport, weren't we? No, it was right. And obviously, you know, if you were, uh, if you were, your favourite game in the world was uh, kabaddi. Or, Which uh, I don't even know what it is. <laughs> Marvellous Indian game. Right. Fantastic. Yeah. The, the, the world of Kabaddi's not hit the television screens right. yet. yet. <laughs> but let's, let's, say, let's say, for instance, you're a squash player, badminton player, yeah. uh, for thinking of two great games that mm. probably aren't the highest profile, the well-known people in the... And perhaps the prize money's not marvellous, I don't yeah. know. Snooker's done very well, considering it's a pastime for most. Right. And we were very fortunate that the game was picked up by BBC initially... Yeah to show off colour television. Mm -hmm. And then before we knew it, we were household names. Yeah. So from, from that perspective, I consider myself very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. Right. And on another given parallel universe, mm. I could have been a, a badminton player doing mm. very well, but not as well as the snooker players. Right. But the snooker game is not as popular as golf or tennis mm. worldwide. And the, the strange thing about that is the viewing figures are pretty decent for snooker and probably yeah. more so if you look I'm not absolutely sure you look mm. at the viewing figures for golf in the UK compared to the viewing figures for snooker I think probably snooker does very well yeah but the prize money's are different do you think maybe there's a lot of people who watch snooker but don't play it but golf a lot of people play it as well I mean, it's huge in America there's so many people play golf don't they in America yeah they do and um, it's obviously where sponsors want to be seen to yeah. be entertaining their customers and hospitality right. and whilst snooker's good fun and you're the world championship great event yeah. uh, shown on the television yeah. we've we've always felt that perhaps it was a second class game compared to golf and tennis right. for the, the, the some of the sponsorship yeah but we still have great sponsors and we, we respect those sponsors but sure. getting into the blue chick companies has been quite tough for snooker yeah fortunately we got quite a good entrepreneur now at the helm barry Hearn, yeah, yeah. my best friend and manager very right. nice yeah and he's done wonders to turn it around but there's still other levels to get to. Yeah, okay, so I want to pick up on Barry and manager and friend in a moment. What I really like doing for myself, I just one of my passions is to study, observe and get to know and become friends with successful people and try and get in their head and work out some common threads I can maybe learn that maybe helps me develop better as a property investor, entrepreneur, interviewer, etc. Uh, and then also I've got a community like you, you know, not, not on a global scale. Well, actually on a global scale, but yeah. some countries only a few. So you said... In snooker, you practiced a lot, but you knew other people who practiced a lot. But is there anything Steve Davis could say did make him become successful? I think I had a very good work ethic. I didn't really ever sit back for very much time, even after successful events, mm -hmm. before I was back on the practice table yeah. working on my game. So I never, I don't remember ever thinking I've cracked it great. And did you see other snooker players who were a bit like that? I can't say because I didn't see them in the in the period of time after an event had happened. But mm. obviously, not everybody would have been so perhaps blinkered and one-dimensional in yeah. one respect as far as how you went about mm -hmm. your job. Yeah. So, I think I probably had a good a, a good outlook that I kept my feet on the ground. Yeah. I think lucky to have parents who were that way as well. That's mm -hmm. helpful. But when it comes to a sport. It's not an equal playing field in one respect. I mean, probably the same in business. You go, you've, got, you've got your brain, okay? Mm. In sport, you've got to have the ability, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the knack, okay? Yeah. So whilst you can go, yeah, yeah, I, I did this differently. I, yeah, I, I studied the technique and I improved technique. I, I, I moved it on another level. 
and I perhaps went went to another level of preparing match play wise. Yeah. You still got to have that X factor that is unquantifiable and possibly not something you can learn. Yeah. It's got to be in your body, in right. your makeup. So I hesitate to say that I did anything differently from anybody else because sure. it may just be I was better than them because that was how it was. Yeah, well, I suppose if, if the, every percent of success was quantifiable, we could all just have a blueprint for it. So there's a, yeah. But then we still want to strive to learn, don't we, to be the best. I think, I think my pursuit of perfection on the practice table yeah. with my technique was something that always held me in good stead. Yeah. So I never, I never stopped trying to learn. Yeah. And whilst there was a danger that you can tinker with something just mm. for that sake of tinkering, yeah. I was always looking to try and upgrade my technique, right. therefore trying to upgrade my standard. Yeah. I don't know how many of the other players were actually physically self-critical sure. to that degree. So I think you should always question yourself, yeah. even if you're being successful, as to is, is there another level you could achieve if you improve something. So going back in sporting history, Nick Faldo, yeah. apparently at some stage in his career, decided to dismantle his he did. technique. Change his swing. Rechange mm. it. Well, and you would go, well, that's madness. You know, yeah. you know, he's, he's successful anyway. Why would earth would you want to do that? Mm. Well, he felt that was the only way he could get to the next level. Yeah. So whilst I probably didn't necessarily go to that level... Yeah, I mean, we go left-handed or anything like that. Yeah, no, yeah. I think I, I probably was always looking to upgrade. So, yeah. and I, I would say that's probably the only area. But sure. I mean, I, that's the only area. and well, I, Nothing else really could spring to mind. OK. Most successful entrepreneurs I've ever met, it's a similar thing in a different world, which is always looking to grow, mm -hmm. always looking to you know, constant, never-ending improvement. There's a saying, uh, probably quite a clichéd one, which is, it's not um, practice that makes perfect, but perfect practice that makes perfect. So were you the, you know, trying to beat balls and hit as many balls as possible? Or did you discover some little techniques which made your practice more perfect, if, if you see what I mean? Because you can pot thousands of balls a day or you can... Yeah, I think um, you really are... I, I certainly felt as if I was, I was sort of finding my own way in that area. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a mentor that had previously gone down that road, so like, like an Ivan Lendl who would be... Yes, Andy, Andy Murray, Murray yeah. I didn't Today's have... Today's world number one. Yes. Which is, what a massive, amazing yeah. achievement. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a sports psychologist because that was never the way back uh, mid-70s, 80s. Yeah. And I don't think I would have wanted one. But I had my father who was, who was on my side in my corner. So you didn't was, have a mentor, but you kind of did. I sort of had somebody who was in my corner yeah. who wasn't that knowledgeable about the game, not massively knowledgeable, but was enthusiastic enough to be my overseer. Yeah. He was continually watching me play and going, You're cha you've changed that, you need to get that back to there. So yeah. he was always looking at me. So he, he, even though he wasn't a, that great a snooker player, he could keep an eye on me. Yeah. So we together as a team tried to work out what was the best types of practice. Yeah. And whether I got it right or not is another matter because well, I look six back. Six world championships. Yeah, I know, yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I look back at my, at my sort of career and I think if I'd have had my time to do it again, I may not have done so much practice because I probably could have improved the quality yeah. instead of the quality. A percentage of time from a snooker perspective, you've got to play the game. Yes. A bit like a boxer's got to go in spar. You yeah. can't just shadow box. Yeah. He needs to play the game. So a percentage of time you'd have to effectively play against another player in a match situation yeah. sparring. 
But if I had my time again, I would do it differently. I think I did make mistakes in as much as I didn't concentrate on things that now are very important. Like what? Then that would be the importance upon heavy scoring within the game. And that sounds stupid to say that because you, you, you've got to pot the balls to get points to score. But yeah. the modern day players now are very, are very one visit, one break, it's yeah. all over. And they become very good at positional play. Yeah. I don't think I probably studied positional play as much as I should have done. Right. I remained constantly on minor technical changes. Yeah. Perhaps if I had my time again, I would go down the road of trying to improve my positional roots around the table. Right. I don't exactly know how that's... But there, there, there is a way that I think the modern-day successful people could probably teach the older people new tricks. Yeah. And I, I, didn't, I didn't really see that at the time, but now I look back, mm. I think that perhaps um, you should be... To be cutting-edge, you've got to try and be... Once, you've got to try and look at what is going to happen. Yeah. And what I should have seen, perhaps, was that there was going to be another level of player above me and they would be better, not just at potting the balls, but also playing the positional side. And I tried, should have tried to have upgraded that. Yeah. That's about it, really, yeah. I think. That's all I can sort of criticise myself for. Mm. OK. So did you ever play practice matches with any really good players? Strangely enough, no. I kept oh, right. away from them. Was that an intentional decision? Yeah, I didn't. I, I mean, you I to I, see the weapons. That no, had. yeah, I, I don't know if it was because I didn't want to expose to be too friendly to, with them. Yeah, I didn't know if, if. I'm not sure whether it was because I felt that perhaps they'd be better in practice than I was. Right. I, I'd be a better match player. Yeah. But they they're a better practice player, and if we played enough in practice, they might suss that out. Right. I don't yeah. know whether yeah. I was being quite defensive in that. So I used to play people I could beat. Yes. But you can always, like in same as golf, you can give somebody a handicap yeah. and have a relatively decent game. Yeah. So I did keep away from other top players. That's interesting. Yeah, and, and yeah. another thing, what, is that the right thing to do? Probably not, mm. because the modern-day players all play against each other and right. fight in the pit with each other in practice, and they become much more proficient and mm. much more hardened. So I had it all my own way in the 80s, yeah. but then when Stephen Hendry came along... Yeah who was a player who moved the game further up. Mm -hmm. I was quite fragile when that happened. And, and then from then on, I don't think I was the same player. So yeah. perhaps if I had have played a lot more decent players, perhaps I'd have been more prepared for that. Yeah, OK. And you tra transitioned into, let me get this right, it's nine ball, isn't it? What? Into, well, no. I remember watching you do American yeah, I, ball. Yes, I did. Well, that's, is that nine ball it, or is that eight ball? Eight, nine ball nine was the ball, game. Yeah. The only reason why it would appear as if I made a career move in that respect is that Sky showed a lot of that on television yeah. and they also showed a lot of repeats. Yeah. So it looked like I was playing more than I was. Right. Effectively, what happened was that Barry Hearn, who is one of the biggest independent broadcasters of uh, producers of, of sporting footage in the UK, Yeah was looking to expand his portfolio and saw that Nine Ball Pool was an was a exciting game for yeah. America, created an event called the Moscone Cup yeah. and uh, you know, the rip-off of the Ryder Cup, yeah. named after the great Willie Moscone, the, uh, the, the pool player, yeah. and needed a few British players. Ah, interesting. So it wasn't the, your... It was a, encouraged by someone else. So I was a mercenary. Right. right? You were a hired I was a, I was a hired hand. Yeah. So me and Jimmy White 
started to play pool yeah. along with some of the European players to get a, a European team together. Yeah. We weren't good enough really, but we, we learnt our trade a yeah. bit. Did, did you ever win a Moscone Cup? We won the Moscone Cup. Did. I watched yeah. it. One, I of my, it. One, yeah. of my, one of my most favourite memories yeah. was beating the Americans yeah. after we'd be, been bashed up five times on the trot. Yeah. The Germans hated the American players. Right. The German lads, were, and they all hated the Americans because they all felt they were too big-headed. Yeah. And, uh, and Oliver Altman was our captain. Yeah, uh, yeah I remember. And he was like, he just hated them all. <laughs> right? And, and, and I, when I first arrived on the side, I thought, well, they're nice people. Yeah. I don't see what's the problem. But after year after year of us getting beaten and them shoving it down our throat, mm. like, in the end, I learned to hate them as well. <laughs> yeah. So collectively hate them. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when we beat them, I mean, we were crying our eyes out. Yeah, yeah it was a fantastic I, I moment. It, yeah, it was a fantastic it. moment. Yeah. And, and I must admit, even though it was a foray into a, a game that wasn't my chosen game, Still a ball and a stick, yeah. but I got great value out of the Moscone Cup for great fun. So, talking about you know job satisfaction, wonderful, mm. yeah. And and that, you know to some degree, regardless of how much you get paid for things, yeah, some things uh, you can't really buy. And, and the excitement of the Moscone Cup always sits there. Sure. I am um, Frank Bruno sat on the same seat uh, a few months ago. It's a bit of a dent. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite, they're quite cosy. And, it's um, a big boy, isn't he? He is. He's still a big boy. He's still in really good shape. Yeah, yeah. And he's become a good friend. And uh, one thing he really stressed when I interviewed him was pretty much straight away he was getting good advice. He's got to plan a career after boxing. You know, you can get hit, you can lose your um, faculties. Yeah. Did, was there ever a strategic plan for you to have a beyond... Well, Snooker career. <clears throat> I must admit, during, during the whole 80s, I thought I was invincible right. and uh, nothing was ever going to change. Yeah. I don't know that anybody could have foreseen that Snooker would still be around on TV at the start of the 80s. Yeah. And even by the end of the 80s, I mean, I don't think, don't think necessarily anybody would have had the vision to know that it was guaranteed to be on television. Do you think maybe your rivalry with Stephen Hendry was part of keeping it interesting? Possibly, yeah, and I think all the rivalries sort of you know, are, yeah, all those things are uh, irrelevant. But, but from my own perspective, I don't really think I thought too far into the future. What I would say is that uh, judging myself as, a, as an animal, I would say that to be good at something, especially a sport, I don't think you are actually that, you don't have that much vision into the future or the right. past. I think it's probably the reason why you're good at your sport is because you don't look too far right. into the future and you don't look into the past. So maybe you that's why you need good people around you, like Barry. Possibly, yes. Yeah. I think, and, and of course that then asks the question, you know, if you fall in with the wrong manager, the wrong agent, you're vulnerable. Because mm. I do think that people in sport, that's their, that's their job, that's what they're good at. Yeah. They probably don't have that many other good skills or there's, there's every chance they yeah. have. I mean, occasionally you're going to get something. Well, you just can't put your time everywhere, can you? So, no, yeah. and I, but I think... Um, so therefore, I think if you're you're lucky if you fall on your feet and you bump into somebody who's a who's a good who's a good egg, so mm -hmm. to speak, in that department, yeah, you you can have some sort of judgment yourself. You, you know, you don't you don't basically it's your own fault if you don't see the signs. Yeah, but you you know some people I think fall on their feet better than others. And um, yeah. but I certainly didn't have a plan. I don't think I've ever had a plan. It's worry. I mean, I look at you and think you've got a plan. I've got <laughs> yeah. a plan. I don't know what a plan is. <laughs> uh, you know, basically, I'm just try, I'm just trying to still try and work out what I'm doing on the planet. Yeah, yeah. I don't right. know about That's you. I've got a clue what I'm doing on the planet. Well, okay. Um, I have. Have, have you? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what we're doing here. Anyway, carry <laughs> on. <laughs> right, so, 
Does Barry manage some of your affairs then? He's your agent, is he? Yeah, and, and uh, he's like an older brother, great mate, um, yeah. agent, manager, all rolled into one. And, uh, and I've watched him grow from being owner of a few snooker clubs yeah. and then all of a sudden liking watching snooker matches to yeah. all of a sudden realising that he liked to promote things and yeah. then it growing into not just promoting and taking an interest in management of, of sporting people, but also branching out into managing sports mm. and promoting other sports yeah. and ended up creating TV programmes yeah. and went with the flow, the yeah. same thing. Pool was a big one. Yeah. Poker was massive. Yeah. Darts has become even more massive mm. now. Mm. And, um, and he's behind all of those, is he? He's behind all of those, yeah. Wow. I mean, most of the poker you see on the, you've see you seen on the television over the years. He must be doing all right then. Yeah, he's doing okay. Yeah. He's doing, and matchroom sports grown. Yeah. And I've seen him you know, grow as a, as a person and become... Yeah, uh, uh, I think you know, marvelous to watch it happen. Yeah. As an entrepreneur, yeah. which is much more scope than a snooker player yeah. in a way. Yeah. But it's been great watching. The, it's been, the journey's been amazing because we yeah. started off just the two of us. Yeah. In my manager, me a player. He didn't have a clue if I was going to become any good or not. Yeah. But so what I did. It, sorry, sorry again. Serial no, interrupter. No what does a snooker manager do for a snooker player? Well, I mean, really, the only reason you would need a manager in any sport is if you can generate off-table earnings. Off and that's why he called you the nugget, isn't it? No, 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 that was, oh, a, that right, was well. no, no, the nugget came from the fact that when I toured around the country as an amateur, all my mates that used to follow me around would have a bet on me. Right. With the other guy's mates. Right. And I, I had such a good strike rate yeah. that I was there, I was basically money in the bank. Right. Was, yeah, so yeah. I was their golden nugget that was more or less buying money. Right. You know, if you, uh, and so, like, if you're, uh, if you're, if you're that much a favourite, that's yeah. more or less what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I had yeah, many nicknames, but um, yeah. Uh, Sorry, the, yeah, no, the, yeah, but Barry's sort of involvement was really initially good because he was quite a strong character, good presence. You know, whereas I was shy and retiring and everything. You know, I was just just playing snooker. Yeah. He was shouting from the rooftop, rooftops that I was going to be the best player in the world. Right. And that was good to have somebody on yeah. your side like that. Did that help you believe in yourself more? I think it probably did, that yeah. somebody else was sort of fighting my corner yes. for me, even yeah. though yeah, he couldn't help me pot the balls. It was yeah. good to have somebody in your, on my side like that. So I had a pretty strong team, my father, technical, yeah. and my father, yeah. and Barry, who was like this yeah. larger-than-life character who was in my corner, and probably psychologically did a little bit of damage to the other players because yeah. in the end they believed it yeah. or they just let it happen, yeah. perhaps. Well, I mean, Muhammad Ali, look at how that affected yeah. people. Yeah. yeah, I mean, talk a lot in business about having a great team. That's definitely something I'm picking up on. Yeah, and I probably didn't know it at the time and it wasn't a massive team. It's not like you know, a dietitian or all yeah. that, but yeah. it was, there was, there was, there was like that, that hardcore. Then a couple of people around us, sort of like a couple of friends who became sort of drivers and... Yeah. and to be wrong to say gophers, but people just to help you out on the yeah. day so you've got some company. Mm -hmm. And I think that we were the first people to do it like that. Mm -hmm. And then Stephen Henry came along, mm -hmm. uh, the most successful, still the most successful snooker player. Yeah. And, he, and his manager up in Scotland more or less replicated mm -hmm. what Barry had sort of set up right. and had a, a strong team ethic as well. Yeah. And I think that made Stephen Henry more invincible, yeah. that he was, it was strong, you know, that he... The, not just the fact he was a great player, but he also had good management behind him. And that's yeah. how it was perceived by all the other players right. who didn't even have a manager, so sure. to speak. But that's, the, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a situation where I don't know of a, a snooker player who's ever really been in a situation to sell themselves off the table. Yeah. It's better 
for somebody else to sell you as a commodity yeah. than it is for you to not only play the game but then have to deal with sponsorships and so that he also did that deal with, yeah, with all your yeah. and I think that would be a hard thing to do you'd have to be, yeah. you'd be you'd have to be quite a strange snooker player to be good in that department as well as being able to play the game yeah because they're different beasts I think yes yeah well I mean Cristiano Ronaldo credits a lot of his success to his agent his family friend in football, for example, you can make one bad, like Balotelli moves to Liverpool, really bad move for his career, one bad move, and I guess agents, because you, you talked about vision and maybe you not having it, Barry sounds like he must have it if he went from a few snooker tables to... I think so, yeah, and, or having the imagination, on-the-spot imagination, or being able to go with the flow and having the talent when the flow happens. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know what the difference is, whether people sit down and go and, and make a 10-year plan where they want to be, or whether when the moment comes, mm. they're ready with all of these ideas in their head. Mm. But interestingly, Barry Hearn over the years has bumped into loads of different people from loads of different sports. And one person that he thinks is quite exceptional in not just being probably going to be the best in the world for a, a fair length, length of time, but also has a good head business-wise on his shoulders, is Anthony Joshua, the boxer. Ah, yes. So yeah. at some stage, that would probably be a very good interview subject for you. Yeah, OK, well, if you're watching... I love Barry as well. If he's Great talking. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. sure he would do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just talking about him quickly, it, it, from the outside, it looks like he's good, got good people around him because it looks like he's picking his fights well. And he's doing this. Yes, he is. And he's yeah. not just doing this or, you know. No, well, I mean, the world of boxing uh, is a very strange world. There's obviously a lot of ma uh, boxing uh, fights are, are stepladder fights yes. that you can't lose. Yeah. But obviously, the other the other side of it, if you go in too quickly, you can get damaged. Yeah. So it's always a case of making the right decisions for the boxers. But in the past, yeah, there's always a temptation. But when you get somebody who's who's excellent, no, really excellent, yeah. sometimes it's not going to make any difference because they're no, going to they're going to cut so through the the, the, the riff raff, so yeah. to speak, a lot quicker than others. Yeah. So everybody's predicting that you know he's going to be a unified sure. world champion for many years, and he's so strong. Yeah. It's got to be done. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but he's already on the way. So, yeah. And it's fascinating watching that happen. And whilst Barry Hearn doesn't manage him, he's, he promotes his fights. Yeah. And, and, yeah, so, but ma managing is a very strange art. I mean, at one stage, Barry Hearn was managing lots of people. Right. But it's a bit like probably having employees. Yeah. That's got its own headaches. Yeah, they, they say six, maybe eight at a max is the most you should manage. Yeah. Before you're spread too thin. But even so, you're dealing with human beings yes. who can let you down as well. Yes. Not just, it might, you might be doing a good job, but the person themselves is not yes. good enough as well. So, so from that perspective, yeah. over the years of management, he's shied away from more than, than in the end, he doesn't really manage anybody yeah. so much now. What I've seen, my experience in business world is entrepreneurs and managers are also different beasts. You know, a manager will care for an individual, look after their needs, be able to follow a system and a process, be there and available. An entrepreneur is like, let's go over here, let's beat the path yeah, down. Yeah. And oft often, generally speaking, of course, but often entrepreneurs make terrible managers and great managers don't necessarily make good visionaries. No, no, I can see that. Uh, I'd say perhaps Barry's been okay, actually. Mm. I'd say he's been very good in, in, in all departments. But I can understand how that could be the case. Mm. But I, I would say that he's probably found his ideal setup now. Yeah. But of course, he's, he's now getting... You know, he's an old man now. He's got his heating <laughs> yeah, out. He's 69 years old. Hopefully he is. <laughs> 69. Yeah. Can't believe it. After, yeah. and, but his son, uh, Eddie Hearn, has now taken over the boxing. Yeah. And is doing 
a marvellous, marvellous job. He's a, chip, he's a chip off the block. Yeah. And uh, Barry rate, rates him very highly as sure. doing a better job than he ever done in the boxing world. So, right. you know, that, that whilst you can, you can try to learn to be good at something, when you look at the genetic makeup of people, mm. the fact that Eddie Hearn is the same animal yeah. as his dad. Could he have just learned it from his dad, though, you know, over like, how well, old is Eddie? He? Well, he, oh, he's in his he's 30, probably 30 now. So know, could he have learned it over 30 years? Well, he could have done, yeah. but, you know, do you breed, is it you breeding true? I mean, yeah. you know, are, we, are we better than racehorses or not so good as racehorses for breeding true? Yeah. My, would my kids, my two kids, one of them tried to be a good snooker player. He was okay, yeah. but not good enough to be. Footballers, sometimes they get sons of big... But mm. in, in the business world, if you've got the right business brain, how often does that breed true? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm still learning about that because I, I think when I was younger, it was like it's all nature. You've got it or you haven't. And I think a lot of people use that as an excuse for being a victim. I, oh, well, I wasn't okay. born like that and I can't do it. Therefore, I'm just not good enough. And you're lucky, Steve, because you were born with the genetics to be the world's new champion. But then if someone said that to you, you might have gone, well, you don't know how many hours I practiced. Well, yeah, well, yeah. and then that's that thing about uh, you know, if you put in enough hours, can somebody become good at it? And yeah. I think there's somebody in... Um, Australia, I think he's an English guy and his wife, have started to send their two-year-old and three-year-old kids to tennis lessons yeah. with a view to trying to prove that you can create with enough practice well, a tennis Matthew, champion. Matthew Side did it. In, have you read the book, Bounce? Did it in table tennis, same experiment. Right. Yeah. It's funny you say this because I don't believe it. Oh, but, well. but I, I, you know, to become very good, I think there's there's a knack. Because yeah. I, 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 but but perhaps perhaps yeah. I'd be proven okay. wrong. So uh, I I, w I wanted to be a pro golfer when I was uh, younger. Never got anywhere near it really. I got into sort of high single figures when I was 13, 14. Various things got in the way and I didn't I, I didn't make Have it. Have you got aspirations for the seniors tour? Uh, well, yeah. so that's a classic yeah, yeah, classic yeah. mistake. <laughs> yes, yeah, and. Um, I really want to raise my boy to be world number one golfer. And he started when he was one. And I haven't got the genes of being a professional golfer or the best in the world. It's a bit I, late now, one. Because I wasn't. Okay, yeah, well, yeah. There you go. Anyway, he played in the world under six as the youngest competitor when he just turned five. And right. He came in the, 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 the second third. Yeah. And um, he's already quite, he won the qualifier as the youngest player to play next year's under six. But next year he'll be in the right age group because he was only just turned five. And so these two, I'm in this parallel universe as these two tennis. We should th have an interview in like 17 years and see how I did. I, I think it's fascinating because obviously, if, if, it's, if, it's, uh, if you play enough of something, you are, mm. you're, you, you know, it's, it's what you know. You, you, you're like yeah. learning to ride a bike to the nth degree. You're, mm. you're so proficient at that one yeah. particular thing. I still think that there's going to be somebody comes along who's more naturally gifted than the hard worker who can just yeah. cut through a lot quicker. But Could the naturally gifted person be the person who's just learned better? <sighs> uh, by the way, I'm not trying to cause an argument. No, you know, no, no. It's, just, um, I, I, it's a fascinating debate, which... Well, when, when we, we, I, we... So I'm involved with our, our world coaching scheme. We are involved in getting more coaches on board, but also yeah. we, we go into schools and sometimes do Q-zone into schools, which is, to some degree, uh, uh, good for snooker to to expose it to younger children, but also the teachers quite like it because it's another way of learning maths. Mm. But we take loads of small tables into a school yeah. and we're bumping into lots of kids that have never picked a queue up in their life. Right. And it's amazing how some people 
naturally gifted. Yeah. And others don't even know what end to hold, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's not really any tuition has gone into that. You could just, and all of a sudden you can spot somebody. You can just go, that person's got it. They've, yeah. got, they've got the feel, they've got the touch. Yeah. Uh, and I, so I'm very much down the road of it's, yeah. it's a knack. But I, I've got an open mind, that's all I'll say, because I think when I was the victim myself who always assumed who people were good, were lucky and had the genes, I, I wrote myself off at be, ever being successful. Because I don't have business genes. I was uh, in a lot of debt as an artist before I got into business and property. So, OK, someone could say, well, they were latent within you when you were born. But there's been no... A biologist has no. cracked DNA and gone, ah, Steve Davis, there's the snooker six times world champion gene. But with Stephen, there's the, is he seven or is he eight? Yeah, seven. Yeah, seven, yeah. so there's, there's, there's been no chromosome, has there, that's... Well, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be, or, a, terrible, it'd be a terrible world if you could, if you could find yeah. what that is, because then obviously then you're going to be able to orchestrate that as well. So yeah. you, could, you could create somebody, but I don't think... Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if, it's a, if it applies just to sport or if it applies to business. I, I would say probably it applies to everything. Mm. You, you've either got it or you haven't, would be my... Yeah. OK. That's good. Well, that's, um... Right. I've, by the way, that's question one. Oh, dear. <laughs> got, all, right. Got to, um... all right, so maybe we'll do some quick-fire ones. OK. Take us to the exact time when you found out... Was, is it MBE before OBE? MBE. Yeah, yeah MBE, yeah. You got both, didn't you, MBE, OBE? Yeah, well, I think, yeah, well, effectively, when you get OBE, you're no longer MBE. Right, so you drop, okay. It's dropped, like a hot okay. stone, you have to... Right, you have to give it back. You're <laughs> supposed to give it back, actually. Yeah, OK, so MBE, was that in the late 90s? Late 80s. Late 80s, OK. Do you remember the exact time when you got the letter or you got the call or whatever and how you felt? I don't remember exactly. How I felt was ambivalent towards awards, Yeah. but proud... Not so much for me, but very pleased for snooker. Yeah. Because snooker's had, um, had, has had uh, this, the sign of a misspent youth yeah. doom hanging over it, right. cloud. And so the fact that snooker players were getting recognition at, at government level, yeah. um, which where, where it comes from, I think, yeah. uh, was, so good for the sport. was good for the sport. Yeah. So I was proud to accept it, and I, I have no views one way or the other sure. as the, of the awards itself. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. If you were to disrupt snooker... So, you know, suggesting improvements, trying to get a bigger reach, get the players more earnings, whatever. Give us a couple of things you might do. I think snooker's popularity is because it works because of the fact that you can see the tension building up. Yeah. So plenty of people go put a shot clock in, make it faster, yeah. fast food. I think why it works is for the complete opposite. It's a bit right. like putting a shot clock into poker yeah because you want to speed up the thinking process yeah. but you lose the tension right that's actually so actually whilst everybody's going let's put more razzmatazz into it funnily enough over the years why it's worked is because it's actually slow yeah strangely right and people don't realize where they're getting their value yeah. so it's a good book as opposed to the short story yeah so in a world of fast food things happening where everybody's trying to to make everybody like low attention span, and everybody's going, oh, we've got to make this, we've got to make it 20 20 cricket, we'll make it 10 10 cricket, 5 mm. 5 cricket, whatever it's going to yeah. be, you know? Yeah. Actually, don't. If it, it, effectively, I would say go against the flow, because why it's worked and how, why it's been so popular is, is for exactly the same reasons. So making it faster is not going to work. Yeah. So, uh, and trying to make it anything more than it is, you're trying too hard. Yeah. So I wouldn't change a thing. Right. Okay, good answer. Your answer. If you could unpick why you think, let's start with Stephen Hendry, 
Why do you think he was so successful? You could unpick a couple of traits. Fantastic bully, very self-centred, in a nice way. Yeah. Very driven by winning. Yeah. And had great temperament. That is something that, whilst you do learn it, is something that is handy if, you, if you've got it in abundance. Yeah. And I think um, one of the reasons why he retired so quickly was that once he stopped winning, he lost interest. Him. It yeah. hurt him a lot. Mm. I was able to, to some degree, go down a pan a lot further, a bit more masochistic, perhaps. <laughs> he wasn't having any of it. No. He decided to retire in the top 16 because he wasn't winning. Yeah. Ast astonishing in sport to retire within the top of the game. Right, he yeah. did it. And I think that was one of his strengths. Turned out to be one of perhaps the weaknesses is he couldn't handle losing yeah. as much. And so he never got any... He didn't win again yeah. after he started losing. Yeah. I, I had a couple of wins after I started losing. Yeah. But Stephen, it seemed like all of a sudden that was the end and he sort of... Right. Not saying he threw his teddies out of the pram, but yeah. he, he decided that he wasn't going to... Yeah. He, he wasn't enjoying it. Sure. OK, Ronnie. What? A couple of things that made Ronnie really successful. Well, Ronnie really successful for the exact reason that I claim that it's natural and you can't teach it. Yeah. He was born to have a cue in his hand. He's, yeah, he looks like he was. He's like, pin, yeah. he's like a pimple wizard. Yeah. He's like Tommy. On, he, 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 he's like he's one with the machine. Yeah. With a cue in his hand at the table, you'll never see anybody more comfortable. Yeah. And that is something, you know, you, you can't teach somebody how to hit the ball. You can show them the mechanics, but the feel, to feel the balls yeah. as he feels them, he's on another level. He's the only person... I'd love to see through his eyes what he's seeing when he comes to the table. Yeah. There's nobody else, even Stephen Hendry, that I think that would think on a different level to me. Yeah. Even though Stephen Hendry's a marvellous brake builder. Yeah. But Ronnie O'Sullivan, I think he probably sees different pictures. He's yeah. seen it in 4D. Yeah, and it seems like he sees it really quick. Not ridiculously so quick. quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's been playing since he was 10. Yeah. There is that when it. did you I'm start? Oh, really? 14 when I started. Right. It wasn't a done thing to be playing at 10. No, then. sure. Because it's interesting when Nick, Nick Fowler, he started quite late in golf. Yeah. Yeah, I think in his teens, which is yeah. quite late for golf. I, mean, I think if you, if you, the, the danger is you try to make somebody play too early. Yeah. They, they rebel against it. Yeah. So be careful with your kids. Well, <laughs> uh, I, I do heed and take those warnings because it is definitely a balancing act because just quickly on the one hand I think you should encourage your children to do things that challenge them because if, if you just always say oh don't worry okay do what you want do what you want it's something some of them a bit hand do what you want do what you want do what you want you just end up creating a little bit of maybe a diva or yeah. juvenile yeah yeah so you've got to put them through some challenges I think yeah but yeah I don't, I don't want to build a dislike in the game through forcing him so no but once they play competitively, you'll find out whether they like it or not. Yeah. That's when, that's when all of a sudden that's the acid test. So okay. when they start to enter tournaments because they want to enter them, right, yeah. and then when they get the disappointments, you'll see yes. then if you've got a champion yeah. or just somebody who wasn't really, it wasn't really what they wanted yeah. to do. Okay. What, if you could go back and give yourself advice just as you turn pro around about that era, what advice would you give yourself? The, the advice I'd give myself is exactly what we talked about earlier, which was spend a little less time on pure technique and a lot more time on studying the positional side of my game. Yeah. No other parts. Okay. And then would you go, just as you finished your snooker career and went into your new phase of life, is that if you could go back that then, were you late, late 30s, 40s at that sort of time? 40s perhaps? Yeah. yeah. Would you, what advice would you give yourself if you could go back then? I don't think I'd do anything differently. I think I've sort of gone with the flow, on, 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 but I don't necessarily think I was the right type of animal to go into business. Yeah. I don't think anything 
could ever be as exciting as playing in the World Snooker Championship yeah. and all of those events. So anything I touched after that would have been less of, of an exciting life. Yeah. And I may not have been good enough to be successful at it. So I, I sort sure. of stayed as effectively within the game that I knew yeah. and did other things within it. Okay. This podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. What does the word disruptive mean to you? I think within my own uh, sport, the, the, the word disruptive would sum up one of the greatest snooker players that ever held a cue, a guy called Alex Hurricane Higgins, yeah. who loved to disrupt the authority <laughs> of the game yeah. and, and on various occasions pushed them to the limits. And whilst sometimes they, they claimed that it was because of you know, an alcoholic problem, he was quite a rebel. Mm. And people loved him for it. You know, he tested everybody. Yeah. Bow ties yeah. thrown away, <laughs> yeah. licking the cue ball, <laughs> nutting an official and punching another yeah. one, regularly uh, swearing and, and, and where he was, you know, the game was trying to keep him under control, but he yeah. wasn't having anything. You know, wearing coloured shirts when we wanted white ones. Yeah. Wonderful. But from the point of view of uh, the, the word disruption, also I quite like it because uh, I think only by, by trial and error sometimes do you ever learn anything. So sure. I, quite, I quite like the, the idea that if you do things in a different way, things can happen. Yeah. You do quite a lot of keynote speaking now, is that right? After dinner, sort of keynote speaking, you're going to do one for us? Yes, I am. Minute? The word keynote is a wonderful word. I haven't got a clue what it means. No, it I don't either. It sounds wonderful. Yeah. Uh, but it's a wonderful thing to think that you can do keynote speaking. And yeah. I like, I like, I like um, obviously, a lot of the people in the sporting world do motivational speaking, yeah. which is also... You know, that the word motivation is a big, yeah. big word. Yeah. I prefer to do demotivation <laughs> speaking, and I think that works just as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, is there a question I should have asked you that I haven't? No. No, because um, whilst I like talking about myself, really, I think I, I've talked enough about myself in my life that there is no other question. Yeah. There's no questions left. Okay. Well, I mean, other than what is the purpose of being on the planet, which yeah. I don't know the answer to, okay. and, and what is dark matter, I think we've covered it. All right, then. Growth and contribution. Yes, yes, very good. How about those? Yeah, lovely. All right, then. Yeah, right. Steve. I love, yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thanks a lot. <laughs>